there, Max Fun subscribers. Bonus feed episode of Feeling Seen exclusively for supporters of Maximum Fun. It's me, Jordan Cruciola, host of Feeling Seen. If you're here because you're a listener and supporter of Feeling Seen, I thank you so much for that. Truly, I really appreciate it. If you're brand new to Feeling Seen and decided to start with the bonus content, well, bold choice to you and welcome aboard. Uh, What we've got for you today is a little switcheroo. I will be the one being asked about where I have seen myself in cinema. I'm sort of turning over the the moderation duties to my dear friend, Matt Kolsky. And if you happen to be a very big San Francisco uh, Golden State Warriors fan, or you follow uh, Bay Area sports, you might know... Matt's voice from 95.7, where uh, he's been a sports talk radio host for years. If you're a disaster diva out there, it's possible that you know Matt from appearing on the Disaster Girls podcast. So Matt's been around. I'll call him a friend of the show. He's certainly a friend of mine. He loves the show. I can tell you he listens to uh, every episode. And knowing the format, he really wanted to put me in the hot seat and do the Jordan Cruciola diligence of asking me about how I feel seen. And I am really excited to get into this because I have no boundaries on what I'm willing to share. Everything else will become clear to you as you listen, so enjoy. And thank you so, so very much for being a Maximum Fun supporter. In the most literal sense of the word, we could not do this without you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. Our co-host for today is a a true superstar. She's a (laughs) tremendous writer. She is an excellent podcast host. She is a fledgling movie producer. She is my literal favorite cultural commentator, and perhaps most importantly, she is Auntie Jordan to my children. It's Jordan Cruciola. Jordan, welcome to your own podcast. How does it feel to be on the other side? It feels great. I love talking and I, I, it is thrilling. Uh, it's thrilling to be interviewed by uh, someone who knows me very well and who also has an incredible broadcast voice. So oh. this is like, oh my God, I feel like I'm live radio right now. Well, that's nice. And I'm largely available. So uh, you know, find me on Twitter. <laughs> my name is Matt Kolsky, by the way, uh, as we've both now referenced Jordan mm-hmm. and I are, are friends in real life. Um, and I love her very much. Um, I love Matt very much because I am a great fan of, uh, feeling seen. I figured I listen enough and, and, uh, I think and hope that I know the rhythm enough. I think you do. I bet you do. Uh, let's get to what we do here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are the movies and characters that you have brought for us today? Um, I think for anybody who knows me on the internet, it will be unsurprising to hear that the sort of the marquee movie in in this and the marquee character in this would be Amanda Seyfried's Needy Lesnicki from 2009's Jennifer's Body. But I wanted to throw a little bit of sauce in there. I wanted to throw a little bit of a knuckleball at you and everyone and add another character that's extremely important to me in an in extremely fucking intense movie that I it, it would not be immediately associated with me. And that is um, Elizabeth Mitchell's character in the movie Gia, based on the true 
story of the supermodel Gia Marie Karanji from the early to mid-1980s, whose life ended in fucking tragedy. Fucking so I pulled tragedy, the character man. from that one. Pull the goddamn, character from that one. Goddamn tragedy, Jordan. Uh, goddamn. So I can't watch it anymore. I, I watched it once all the way through, and like I can't go back to it because it annihilates me. Yeah, same. Um... Although the first time I watched it was mere days ago, and the first time you watched it was many years ago. Yeah. Uh, same. This film, as you said, is utterly devastating. It's yep. an absolute emotional nuclear bomb. And yeah. knowing nothing about the film or Gia Marie Karanji. Um, yeah, Matt texted me immediately, I think, following watching it, was like, you didn't prepare me for what that was going to be. It's we'll like, get to this later, but I'm such a scaredy cat about horror that I spent all my time yeah. gearing myself up for Jennifer's body, which, as I'll, I'll tell you later, turned out not to really be necessary. But Okay, great. But I was wildly unprepared for Gia. So tell us, what is the heartbreaking tragedy that is the story of Gia? Yeah, the story of Gia is, again, based on the true story of the model. And uh, she, I believe she was dead by her mid-20s. She rose uh, white hot and uh, came on like a rolling thunder into the fashion scene in the late 1970s, early 1980s. We're talking about the era of Janice Dickinson for all you America's Next Top Model (laughs) and um, uh, supermodel heads out there. And so this was before, like, the sort of golden age of the supermodel, before your Chrissy Turlington, Naomi Campbell, the sort of celebrity supermodel, supermodel era. This is really, like, this is the or text of, of supermodels. In fact, I read something that said she may have been the first person to be referred to as a supermodel. It, yeah, and it, and, and it was basically, like, a, a, a season, like, a couple seasons of fashion that she just came on as such a definitive muse for the industry. And Gia's life was marred by sort of uh insecurity and uh a sort of uh a, a rocky relationship with her mother and there was G was somebody who who wanted to be loved G was somebody who wanted to be adored and going into a volatile industry especially i would imagine in the late 70s early 80s like fashion there's a lot of uh instant and fast gratification especially when you're somebody who seeks love and attention to have that kind of adulation and demand around you and her life spiraled out of control in a haze of drug use, uh, including heroin. I believe it is through intravenous drug use that she uh, contracted HIV and she eventually succumbed to AIDS. Uh, yeah. When, yeah. And that that the parting shot of this movie is one of the saddest fucking things I've ever experienced on film. And it is the story of the her great success and her rapid run toward ruination and the lives that were caught in her swirl uh, throughout the course of that, that short life. I believe the, the, the tagline for the movie is like something like too wild to live, too beautiful to die. I think in addition to the instant gratification and whatnot Mm -hmm. that comes from the modeling community, it is also rife with sort of exactly the sort of usury and despicable behavior that you would imagine. And this poor young woman is uh, certainly emotionally abused and left for dead. And then just as you feel like things might be coming to like a, not not even a happy ending, but like a, (laughs) thank God she's not dead ending. (laughs) HIV, it's like, you know, the the old behind the music joke, and then a new member joined the band, heroin, right? This has the heroin moment, but then just as it's going to be like the, and they never played music again, but they did live to the ripe age of 64. (laughs) Instead, it's like, and then... 
HIV. Yeah, and then HIV at a time when people were still being handled in hospital wards with hazmat suits. And And they had the doctor say, I've never seen a woman have it. Yeah, it was at a time when it was probably in the media still being referred to as GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And it was something that Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS in a speech until I think four years after the first confirmed death from it because it was the gay plague, literally the gay plague. And Gia Gia was a, a casualty of those early years. And Elizabeth Mitchell... Mm, yes. Plays a character in this movie. Uh, her name is Linda in the movie. She is based on the the real figure, Sandy Linter, who was a photographer who had a, I think the nature of the, the, the sort of concrete nature of their relationship uh, in real life, I think was fluid. I think they were friends. They were lovers. I don't think it was ever so. Um, I th- The movie took artistic liberties with them, but I don't think in a way that Sandy Linter really disagreed with. Uh, and she plays a character who is a real port in a storm for Gia, uh, despite the fact that that storm never, ever really ended for her. Yeah. Um, makeup artist, right? Uh, yeah. Matt, yeah. Makeup artist. Makeup artist. And Matt's immediate, I think one of Matt's immediate texts to me after was, I don't think you remember <laughs> what Elizabeth Mitchell's character well, is in this movie, actually. Okay. And I would love so, to get into that. Well, th- th- okay. I was a little surprised. Of course. That was what I wanted. To, that's I wanted the surprise character. And... Uh, well, let me just ask you, because you're you're the co-host here, for God's sakes. What are the things about Linda? Because mm-hmm. I think it's important to say you talked about the real person, but we're talking in this case about the character mm-hmm. Linda, not the yes. real person. And in this case, yes. it is a torrid love affair mm-hmm. that yeah. they're having. Um, what are the things about that character that you felt like at what, 12, 13, you saw this? Yeah. What, yeah. what made you feel seen? Yeah, and I, I think that it was something that I couldn't place about this movie. And t- it was one of those, a reason this movie was so devastating to me was things that, like, I was experiencing at the time that I knew I couldn't, un- I knew I couldn't understand and process, but that I knew were taking place inside of me, judging by, like, the catastrophic emotional reaction I had to this. Like, I was, I couldn't stop thinking about this movie for days. It it made me so upset. And I had seen sad things before. And, and it turns out that Angelina Jolie, I'm just, I'm extremely susceptible to her charisma specifically and so she gets inside of me and under my skin in ways that few performers uh ever have or ever could she is spectacular in this movie yeah if this had been if this had not been an hbo movie and had been a theatrical release this is exactly the thing that oscars are made of this is a biopic devastation tragedy ruin like this would have been an oscar performance for sure and what i learned also watching this movie was that elizabeth mitchell is somebody who is an extreme empathy generating presence for me on screen I, I am so touched by anything elizabeth mitchell does on screen and I, I again i couldn't tell you why maybe it's because this role implanted on me so deeply from such a young age that like there's this carryover for the rest of my life or whenever i see her i feel an innate connection to elizabeth mitchell's performances but um i would imagine there's a bit of surprise in in me relating to this character because again this is a torrid affair this is a sexual relationship this is this is carnal this is but the thing about it that I that was really hitting me that I've thought so much about since then was I think this was the first time I really think this was I saw first time I saw a queer relationship between women on screen. Hmm. I think that this was I think this was that like I had seen other gay male characters a couple of them I think the first gay male character I remember tracking was Hollywood from the movie Mannequin my first favorite movie in life. Um, 
but this was that's something else. Yeah, yeah. That's your first favorite movie in life. That was my first favorite movie of all time. Was fucking Mannequin. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Starring Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall. A Kim Cattrall classic, ladies and gentlemen. Go check that out. Um, and watching this movie, I knew at the time even that like the whatever queerness means to me now I, I I identify with some version of it then in a way that I didn't have language for and I I felt so connected to the intensity of this relationship between two women in a way that you didn't see that kind of intensity applied to non-sexual relationships between characters mm-hmm. like it felt more to me reminiscent of the intense like draw and connection I felt to like the friends in my life and uh, most of those relationships were same-sex relationships it felt like it matched the kind of intensity and draw that I felt for people that felt more reminiscent than, than the friendships that I saw on screen there there was always kind of a distance for me between um the gravity and intimacy that friendships were given on films that were popular when we were growing up as as various stage millennials. And so it was really like love affairs were the closest thing that actually mirrored the way that I felt about the people who were most important to me and that I wanted to spend my time around. And even though there was that gap for me where like sexual attraction wasn't a part of it, and only until recently have we granted non-sexual relationships the um, powerful intimacy on screen in film and in television that they warrant. And that is a recent development growing up. All I could have was grafting myself onto romantic relationships to be like, but that feels more specific to me. And also what I saw in Gia with between Gia and Linda is there is this character in Linda who so intensely cares for and is the solid is the anchor amidst chaos for a whirling dervish of a sort of bigger than life high maintenance manic female figure that I I'm so very drawn to. I really identified then in a way that I can name now um, caring for somebody and wanting them so close to me that I know they can never belong to me in the way that they can belong to other people by virtue of like me being ace and sort of my romantic relationships being my friendships and um, the friendships that I have not being with people like me necessarily. And so that kind of intensity and intimacy saved for romantic and sexual partners that I can give over freely um, in in a non-sexual capacity. And that sense of like constantly reaching for a person who is draws so much life to them and is so magnetic, but not quite ever being able to hold them like existentially in the way that I want to. um, That has probably been part of like indicative of like the big, the most emotional work I have done on myself becoming an adult and understanding how my emotions interact with others. My love language interacts with others, the limits of other people's like intimacy boundaries and my own given my capacity for connection and and touch and affection as an as an ace person who has essentially romantic friendships and and having to navigate that gap and so that for me was hugely powerful i think at a really really young age before i could talk about any of this shit um that's a beautiful description and i want to get into a lot more of that some of the more specific stuff about your sexuality later yeah, because actually that will be big time Jennifer's body as well. Yeah, right. So the because the the look, these are both incredibly sexual films, and they're yes. they're different. But actually, the the difference about them and the reason that Needy makes more sense to me for you than Linda, yes, wasn't about the sexuality or 
the fact that it was torrid romance in this film because actually i i mean i logically surmise that there were not a lot of options if you're looking and you've talked about this both on the podcast and i believe you Mm -hmm. and i have talked about this like there were not asexual characters in film when we were and they're like still aren't (laughs) right exactly and and i want to talk about that but before we do the the thing that was more surprising to me actually Mm. is that Linda, she's a little bit of a victim in this movie, isn't she? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you're you're not wrong that she is the sort of port in the storm that Gia is trying to yeah. grab onto, but it's like the port is taking a lot of damage from this <laughs> yeah. storm, right? Uh-huh. Because it's the actual, it's the storm trying to grab the port. Yeah, and, yeah, and rip it from its mooring. <laughs> yeah, and, and ultimately... You know, the only agency that she can take is to walk away from a woman that she loves desperately, yeah. right? Yes. Um, yes. And and I guess that was the more surprising part to me was that, mm-hmm. although I, ha, given what you just said, it makes more sense of a young Jordan struggling to find a way to put words to this, that you saw yourself in a character that was that sort of... I don't want to be dismissive, but that much of a victim. No, and and here's the thing. Here's a crucial thing. I think if I, given my, like, personality profile, given my emotional profile, I think if I was a sexually active person, I would 100 fucking percent have been Linda. (laughs) I would have been beat to shit by people who were like, oh, I can keep taking from you. And I'm like, I can give forever. Like, I think, like, I think back, like, my life, I wouldn't be, like, a greater or less than person if I had had sexual relationships in my life, if I had, like, had a dating life to, like, reflect back on. Um, But I think my tumultuous years before I was able to, like, look at myself with a 30,000-foot view and, like, understand my boundaries and self-care and all that stuff, I think I would have spent a lot of years in less extreme situations than a supermodel who's addicted to heroin who dies of AIDS. I think I would have spent a lot of time with my friends talking me down and being like, Jordan, you can't do this again. Because a, a theme throughout my life is... In these re- intense friendships that I've had that, like, have been wonderful, uh, you know, high-functioning interdependencies and codependencies so often, I'm really good at those. Um, I think a thing that has been a part of those friendships, particularly, like, with, like, very close female friendships that I've had, is there kind of becomes a th- an extra component to that friendship that is the role of other people and how they perceive me interacting with those very close friends of mine. For Like the amount of other people's issues around my very devotional style of being friends in, in certain capacities has often until like really my late 20s been a part of like, well, you know, I just I just think it's kind of weird. It's not like you guys are dating like it's not like you're not my boyfriend and there's this very binary way of viewing the exchange of love and affection that we see as like it's either a dating relationship and it's sexual or it's a non-sexual relationship and it's quote-unquote just friendships and so though I have I do not identify myself as a victim in these kinds of friendships I think there's often been a perception of me as that and I have had many conversations with people where they have put victimizing language on me for how I'm being taken advantage of by these like high maintenance people I'm friends with where I'm like 
I know exactly the situation that I'm in and I I appreciate that you care about me and you're looking out for my interests, but also you're putting your value system on me right now saying that I'm the victim of something that I am 100% enabling and fostering in my behavior and choices. So if you want to judge how I give over to people in an intimate friendship or companionship, that's your fucking problem. That doesn't have anything to do with me. I have never felt so much like I was being taken advantage of by a person um, who I've been very close to so much as other people have put that language on me and told me that like I probably was when I'm like, but I'm not though. And I'm sorry, you don't carry out your friendships the way I do. And I have work to do on myself in terms of limits and boundaries. That's true. But that has been put upon me a lot in my life. And it was an interesting part of like, how much do I care about how other people assess these friendships that people so for so long in my life viewed as unconventional? And how much do I just say, fuck it, that's the chattering class and has nothing to do with me. But also at the same time, in the other end of these like companionships that I've had, their perception of how the public views us as well matters. And I've often had to navigate around that, again, particularly when I was younger, not so much now, um, in a way that the victim language has been an interesting subplot that I don't fucking want, but hmm. that has been projected onto me as sort of many an occasion. Yeah. Uh, we agreed never to watch this film again, but you said you watched yeah. all the uh, Elizabeth Mitchell scenes again recently. Yeah, like probably like a couple months ago, I was I was working on something else and I was like, oh, I need to go back and like make sure like I just check out this character. And I scrubbed through to all of Elizabeth Mitchell scenes. How do you feel like you received the character differently given everything you just said about how you have changed over that time period? Mm-hmm. I, it, it feels... I feel as strong a connection with the character, but thank God it 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 just feels more tamed. Like it it feels more processed. Like it doesn't attack me to think about the the Linda relationship in this, and it, it doesn't. It's not triggering for me to be like, oh man, again in the less extreme circumstance, boy, have I had my Gia's. It's like, <laughs> well, no, but I I have, and I I to me one of my favorite parts about my life is like these intense what some would deem unconventional friendships that I've had with people because I've sometimes they've fucking exploded like volcanoes and <laughs> burned out on impact but they've been wonderfully rich in progress and uh, one of my favorite things a favorite thing about myself is how incredibly fucking passionate and sort of recklessly in love with with things around me and individuals in my life and I wouldn't want less of that for anything and you watch a movie like Gia and it's like it ruined her in certain ways, but what an extraordinary moment and person in time and in fake Linda's life. Uh, there wasn't ever going to be something, I think, that was as much of a wrapped up, all-encompassing sensory experience as Gia. Well, and I think her. similarly, right? I, I imagine if you asked uh, fake Linda in, yeah. you know, 20 years later, do you regret it? She would say mm-hmm. no. You know, maybe mm-hmm. some small regrets within the experience, but not yeah. not that she wishes she never met her or anything like that. You know, it, a, as tragically as it ends, and we haven't even talked about their final goodbye because I, I, <laughs> we don't need me crying on this podcast. But <laughs> um, th- it's it's interesting. Here's what I thought of when you said, uh, you know, it it didn't attack you now yeah right is like it's it's the difference between oh man been there from an emotional <laughs> yeah. perspective and like uh, like just something screaming something's going on here i don't know what <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah versus it's like it's looking at a scrapbook versus being in like a house on fire right yeah yeah okay so speaking of houses on fire what a transition <laughs> let let's go from uh something that 
each of us was only willing to watch once to something that I'm guessing you've seen <laughs> at least 20 times. But for all I know, oh, that could be like 100. Um, yeah, it could be. People found it hard to believe that a babe like Jennifer would associate with a dork like me. Sandbox love never dies. I, I have, on more than one occasion, described you as the world's foremost expert on the film Jennifer's Body. Uh, do you believe that is correct? I have more than one occasion described myself as per, arguably America's foremost scholar on Jennifer's okay. Body. So yeah. Okay, I think that's appropriate. And I, I, I yes. should say, as your friend, I have for a very long time felt a sense of guilt for not having watched <laughs> this movie. But a, as the great wonderful friend you are you've given me a pass because you know i'm a scaredy cat about horror movies i would never want you to be uncomfortable watching a movie yeah not not in that way people who don't like scary movies do not have to watch scary movies yeah and look and the first thing i wrote in my notes is i am scared and that was like during you know before anything happened right yeah yeah yeah. Um, (laughs) but i don't think i had to be uh ultimately this movie is actually incredibly short on the parts of horror that bother me which are you know big jump scares there's maybe one of those in the whole thing Mm -hmm. really really gruesome like saw violence you know i that but i love action violence and i would say Mm -hmm. most of the violence in this movie is more of the actiony variety than like the pure gore right and and Mm -hmm. it is so clever and funny and diablo cody wrote a tremendous script and it's it is incredibly self-aware which i think is a credit to karen kusama the director and karen karen my mistake that's why i have the expert (laughs) i i actually kind of loved it jordan i'm so happy to hear that i just want people to experience this joy of this movie i'm really glad to hear that and ah megan god what a performance uh yes truly spectacular uh in a way i think this movie has more in common with you know, like a Gilmore Girls or probably more appropriately <laughs> Juno than with something oh, like yeah. Saw or like Haunting at Hill House, right? Like this no, is... No question. It's funny and if anything, a little too clever. This is really funny and it also has some real hitter like monologue speeches. Uh, oh, yeah. Colin's mom at the funeral. Anyway, uh, let's not just have me freak out about how much I enjoyed myself. Yeah. You chose needy... Less Nikki. Needy Les Nikki. Needy Les. Um, yeah. So again, this movie's like it takes aim way over the top and just yeah. like fires <laughs> an automatic weapon. Yeah. And uh, you know, it Needy Les Nikki. Here she is, Needy Les. Why did you choose her? Yes, and you know, y'all should know by now, but Jennifer's body, the story of uh, two best friend girls in the Minnesota town of Devil's Kettle, and Jennifer's the Hellraiser, and Needy is the glasses, which means the nerdy best friend That's of right. hers, who she is tugging around, but who Needy is willingly following after. Um, and it is the story of their sandbox love, which never dies. Sandbox love never dies, baby. And uh, it is the story of their increasingly challenged friendship after Jennifer is kidnapped by a shitty rock band who wants to achieve stardom and so therefore is willing to sacrifice a virgin in order to do that. But because Jennifer is not a virgin, the, the curse goes wrong and she becomes a succubus who is doomed to feed on the blood of the living to stay vital and alive. 
And it is uh, it is the story of a deteriorating toxic female friendship. Uh, it is the love story of a friendship. And it also is the story of a succubus needing to be brought down before she wipes out, I don't know, the entire male population of a small Minnesota yes, town. Yes, an emotional and literal succubus. Um, yes. By the way, the lead singer of the band played, I would say, To Perfection by Adam Brody. To Perfection. And yes. the aesthetic of the band captured... <laughs> Low shoulder. Shut, low shoulder. From the name to the tattoos <laughs> to the way they dressed to the, the song eyeliner. That, yep. that they played over and over again. Through the trees. It's the most spectacularly specific and dead on <laughs> version of a very specific talky emo indie rock thing that was happening (laughs) it's it's really really well done um and and yes needy lesnicky to answer your question this is see i think it what elizabeth mitchell and her relationship with gia and like i said like that binary until basically 15 minutes ago of its love of its of its sex or its friendship it's it's romantic or its friendship and there, there's no crossover between romance and friendship and, and in, in intimacy in that way what needy is allowed to be is what comes sort of after walk across the bridge and we find something more of an alternative. We find something more that exists in shades of gray. This is another... My three favorite movies of all time are The Handmaiden, All About Eve, and Jennifer's Body. And all three of those are stories about two women, primarily sort of horns locked in a obsessive, combative, uh, romantic, possibly romantic obsession with one another and how that affects sort of the rest of their life. Uh, my favorite subgenre. And... Um, what we have in Nita, we have that opening where it is Jennifer is a flag girl in the gym for yes. the Devil's Kettle Devils. The and we have Nita watching from the stands. Jennifer is the center of attention. She's stunning. She's beautiful. She's Megan Fox in 2009. And um, we have Needy watching her just like starstruck. And to the point where a character behind, uh, a person behind her is taps her on the shoulder and goes, you two are totally lesbian gay. And Needy responds to her, she's my best friend. And then she gets mocked for how she waved to Jennifer with her big doe eyes. You're totally lesbian gay. What? She's my best friend. (laughs) And this immediate clocking of their connection with one another being so close and so intense that it, it, it is the subject of like observable mockery by other people, it immediately flags that this is something that is exceptional. This is something that is the exception to how we understand how to talk about female connection and female friendship. Homosocial connection and homosocial friendship. Well, and knowing you, that moment that you just described, that, like, I, oh, there's Jordan. There's Jordan! <laughs> um, and, and look, although Jordan... <laughs> is asexual and needy is just straight but let's say bisexual let's maybe say bisexual. bisexual but even that that moment where there is like a brief sexual encounter if you will yeah. between needy yeah. and jennifer mm-hmm. like even that it's also that ultimately is something that lets needy know this isn't right and and like i no, this isn't quite what I want. Like, part of me wants something like this, but this isn't quite like... Even that, I could see how 
you are reflected in like that part of the character. Well, and it's and, and in that like in in the kissing scene between Jennifer and Needy when like Jennifer is killing people, Needy knows it at this point, and Jennifer sneaks into her bed and takes her by surprise. And to neutralize her, you know, Needy's anger at her, Jennifer starts seducing her. Right. And you know, she says like, "We, I, I always stay in your bed when we have sleepovers." Like, you know, and she. It suggests, I don't remember if it's in that scene or another point in the movie, Jennifer says, like, you know, we can play boyfriend-girlfriend. And it sounds like this broader halo of, of intimacy and perhaps sexual connection is something that exists in their life. This is, I, I don't, and Karen has talked about, too, like, she did not want that kiss to be framed as something that's never happened right. between Jennifer and Needy. And I think that that is, what I love about that as background information means that these two are best friends who have this additional intimate component to their life that does not preclude um needy from having a boyfriend that does not preclude jennifer from pursuing boys and adult grown men who shouldn't be having sex with a teenage girl in her hometown but are including the police officer played by chris pratt um it does not preclude them so often what we see in movies when you have like the intense female friendship or the toxic female friendship is that that obsession the roommate single white female things in that category once that obsession takes hold there's nothing that exists outside of it there's this sense of ownership right. and possession that has to happen like you have to be mine and nobody else's and what this movie says is that there is room for romance or sexuality or intimacy even in a friendship that does not have to devastate the emotional lives of, of the two women involved in it. That does not mean they cannot belong to other people in any sort of capacity. Yeah. It means that they have this thing that exists between the two of them, and it is specific to their friendship, but that friendship sits as, apart from and unique to the other intimate relationships in these people's lives, and one does not have to come at the expense of another. And yes, they are jealous of one another's time spent with other people, but that's just the stickiness of like having a best friend, having a really close relationship. Of caring where you start about to multiple kind of, like, people, right? I mean, when you can't... Of caring about multiple people. And yeah. I love that I love that Needy gets to have a sexual relationship in this movie with Chip and have this implicitly, at least occasionally, sexual relationship with Jennifer because it's fine. And that part of it has nothing to do with how these characters resolve in the end. Well, okay. And, and we didn't say this when we did the synopsis. My uh, success with the format of the show lasted all of seven minutes at the beginning of the show. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the way this film ends is with Needy, mm. and in fact, the way the film begins and ends is with Needy yes. in prison, or uh, mm -hmm. sort of, and yeah. the the climactic sort of uh, pre-denouement endpoint is Needy mm -hmm. climbing through Jennifer's window and mm -hmm. stabbing her through the heart in an yes. incredible, uh, epic final battle between them. And mm -hmm. that, to get back to the very first questions i had with the choice yeah. of linda and gia mm -hmm. that to me felt like a much more jordan endpoint huh. to this relationship right and like i see you as a claimer of your own destiny in the end right yes. which is yes. what happens with needy here and yeah mm -hmm. she goes to jail but <laughs> But, like, she's a kicker and, as it turns out, yeah. like a spitter and a biter. Um, yeah. And she's going to get it figured out. And to me, that feels like the Jordan I know that mm -hmm. not the ultimately tragically lovelorn and sad ending right. that we see for Linda, but the I'm in charge here. And if I, if I end up in jail for a little bit, so to speak, yeah. I'll figure it out. <laughs> 
Well, and also I think it, it's such a great demonstration of like historically what queer narratives are so anchored in is either queer villainy or queer tragedy. And like there's there's, you know, if there's a new gay comedy that comes out like the the movie Crush that's um, on Hulu, it is, you know, even one of the cast members, Ali'i Cravalho, when she posted about it was like, hey, do you guys want a gay romance without layered like um, without layered trauma? We've got that for you. Like it is still the stigma of these kinds of movies, especially I think lesbian movies where you have movies like what is it like The World Between Us with uh, Vanessa Kirby yeah. um, where she's playing, you know, two women in a period piece who, who are doomed not to be together. Like that is sort of so much of the so much a fraction of le- a huge fraction of lesbians on screen of, of queer women on screen. And also what you have then is like even there's such a there's such a rebelliousness to the story in Gia where like Linda's character, I think, is is bisexual in that and Gia's character is fucking probably omnisexual and there is a permission for these two women to be so wrapped up in one another but not to forsake other kinds of sex or romance in their lives and it allows for this fluidity of queerness which like Gia's queerness isn't her downfall it's her it's her drug use but what you have is this like queer women's story rooted in trauma in the 90s which is so indicative of what queer stories used to have to be about to exist and you see the evolution of that in the way that Jennifer's body was ahead of its time in making a story that allowed for a broader permission of what queerness looks like of queerness non-normativity within friendships that allows for a broader permission structure of how people can be physically and emotionally and affectionately involved with each other and you see what happens in Jennifer's body tipping off more of what we see in film and TV now between queer characters and the ability to have fluidity in their relationships than we were seeing in 2009 which was in part why it was rejected like that was that aspect of it was tossed off as sensation and what you get to with that that ending scene is you know we start with sandbox love never dies and we have you know, Needy telling Jennifer's little baby character at one point in a flashback, like, Jennifer hurts herself. And Needy's like, don't worry, Jennifer, I'll never tell on you. Yeah. And you see this look on Jennifer's face of, like, Needy is a character who takes care of her. And it seems like a sort of world where nobody's really taking care of Jennifer because she's this larger-than-life femme fatale sort of figure. Mm-hmm. And then even in the end, like, when you have the final fight between these two girls you know, Jennifer's fighting her and she's depleted, but Jennifer could kill Needy. She, like, takes a bite out of her at a certain point. Like, she could kill this person, but she doesn't. And as as she tells her, like, you know, the night of her assault, when they're recapping that, she's like, I don't remember what happened to that. I just know that I came back to you. Because she doesn't ever want to hurt Needy. And even the first time she encounters her when she's in succubus mode, she shoves her against the wall and she tells her, she's like, are you scared? And Needy shakes her, nods her head, yes, because she needs them to be scared. She needs the victims to be hopeless when she kills them and drains them. So she has her opportunity in that moment. She thinks she's going to kill Needy, but she can't do it. So then in the final confrontation between the two of them, they're fighting it out. They're levitating. They're spinning through the air. And Jennifer continues to fight until Needy pulls the BFF necklace off of her and throws it off the side of the bed and it bounces and we get that great slow motion shot. And in that moment, Jennifer stops fighting her. Like the moment, the moment her heart broke is the moment Jennifer decides like, I guess it's over and essentially allows sort of Needy to kill her. And so the final, the coup de grace for Jennifer in that moment is literally the knife, but is in actuality the moment where her friendship with this person in in many ways for these two, the love of one another's lives to that point, um, in the moment that that is severed, that is when Jennifer quits and she allows herself to die. And I loved so much. This was the first time I saw a movie 
that let a friendship mean that much. This was the first time that I saw a movie like a, a friendship between two same sex people was treated like a love story, was treated like something that would be worth a supernatural final struggle yeah. in the final moments of a film. And to see that in a cheeky genre film instead of an un relenting tragedy like it was in Gia was like you mean I can have fun and I can have this too like this feels revelatory to me truly a fun 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 film just before the incident that is ostensibly the moment Jennifer gets possessed yes she and Needy are holding hands in the club (laughs) and when their hands separate there's like there's a thing there's like yeah. a green glow. Do you believe Jennifer was possessed before she got possessed? I don't know if it's a, I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't think it's that. I think one, one of my favorite things about this movie, another one of my favorite things about this movie is um, the almost extrasensory connection that Jennifer and Needy have to one another. Yeah, they sort of the know what that, each other are thinking from large distances and whatnot. Yes, like when when at the very beginning when Jennifer, Needy's getting ready to go out with Jennifer to um, to Melody Lane, the bar that's going to burn down, uh, uh, she knows before Jennifer gets to the door, she's like, I better, she's like, oh, she just like looks up and goes, Jennifer's here. And Chip goes, how do you know that? And then the door opens, she's like, Needy! Yeah. And Chip just goes, that's fucking weird. And then later on when they're having sex, when Needy and Chip are having sex, Needy can see in her mind flashes of Jennifer all the way across town eating Colin Gray and and ripping him apart. And I think it is such a powerful powerful thing about this movie for me that it imbues this friendship with... A, a connection, that invisible string that is so palpable that it can kind of only be conveyed in semi-supernatural terms. Yeah. That, to me, felt like it was honoring the intensity of my feelings in a way that I still rarely feel like I experience movies and TV shows being able to capture that, being able to create a parallel for how I feel emotionally about, like, my most intense friendships and, and what it would look like if you realized it tangibly. And I think Jennifer's body nailed that. And, and I will say, too, uh, just, like, to connect um, Linda and Gia and to connect um, Needy and Jennifer's body a little further, the fact that Jennifer's body allows for an intensity between two people that is supernatural in its capacity with how, with how close and connected they are um, that we can only get uh, in Gia from uh, a, a torrid sexual romance like right. to watch the evolution of that on screen and see the possible come forth in a Jennifer's body is such an incredible thing that allowed me to even the grammar the emotional grammar of Jennifer's body allows me more to decode what I watched in Gia for myself because I feel like I have rules and language that I could put to that thing that I just didn't have before that that movie gives me and that is a phenomenal way to be able to sort of file those things into my sort of emotional life. So, okay, that brings us to, and apologies to your wonderful producer, Marissa, who definitely told me (laughs) that by now I should be wrapping the podcast, but I just have a a couple more things that we need to talk about. Specifically, um, your sexuality. And obviously, you Mm -hmm. know, we can go as as deep or as uh, shallow into this as you would like, but... Mm -hmm. 
panromantic, gray, asexual. You've chosen two Indeed. very sexual films. And beyond that, yeah. knowing you, I know that you are certainly not just capable, but uh, effusive in your sharing of a... Uh, uh, Something I can only describe as horniness. Is that sure? Fair? Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. That's that. That feels like the the, the parlance of our times, yes, man. Yes. In the not in the in the old school sense, but in the parlance of yeah. our times, you yeah. are by no means above being horny. So yeah. Um, explain to those of us who aren't entirely positive what yes. precisely pan romantic gray asexual means. I will say a really wonderful thing about the internet um, and, and, and Twitter, honestly, is the um, what it what was it? Um, oh, it was in when it was Rachel Weiss was all the rage during the favorite press tour, yes. and it was just like lesbians killing themselves to Rachel Weiss kind of thing. <laughs> like the the cut did an article on it, and they described what I thought was so perfect. Like they described the the like internet parlance of lusting after an unattainable celebrity figure yes. as expressing a catastrophic thirst <laughs> for another person yes and that was the i think that is the best phrase i one of the best phrases i have heard that like in lieu of horniness what i access is a like a catastrophic level of thirst that like there is this there's almost this like liberation from actual sweaty sexuality in the way the internet can thirst for people in that way because it becomes so hyperbolic that it like dissociates from the body parts of it it's like i god rachel weiss throw me off a fucking building like i i resonate with that kind of thirst so much because it almost becomes abstract and as far as like sexual involvement with me and another person goes it only exists in abstract so like if a guy responded to me and was like hey i want rachel weiss to show me your boobs i'd be like fucking block you pervert (laughs) but it was like god i just wish rachel weiss would steal my car and repossess my house i'd be like me and you both baby like it, it almost creates a kind of like respectfulness in its horniness through the distance mm-hmm. From actual, like, sexualized language, which I find that very... That's me feeling seen. And I think what... Um, uh, with panromantic gray sexuality, um, I'm, I'm capable of, like, having crushes on anybody. It's the pan part of it. And the panromantic, uh, it, it, it's... It, it, that I do. I have my infatuation crushes that, that covers the spectrum. Asexuality, easy to access. Oh, asexual, not sexual, not having... A, However, for me, there's a caveat in there. There's a little asterisk with the gray asexual, which means staying flexible and open-minded, not closing doors, having a window open, you know? And so I allow for the possibility that sexuality is a moving target and things may shift for me one day. And because I know I have this catastrophic level of thirst in me, I see that very very viably translating into having a sexual relationship with a person one day. I don't know when, who, or how, but like I see that as an option for myself. I don't rule it out. It just hasn't come around for me yet. So the gray is my like, the gray is my hedge. Sure. I Look, so I think most people recognize by... N- Forget most people. I imagine anyone listening to this podcast is well aware that sexuality is a complicated spectrum. I also <laughs> yeah, think even even for people with that understanding and knowledge, asexuality mm-hmm. is one of the most difficult parts of Completely that spectrum agree. to understand. And I think that is yes. both supported by and perpetuated by the lack mm-hmm. of representation that you're talking about, right? So mm-hmm. 
you know, like I, I had to find me fucking Linda in the story of Gia. <laughs> exactly. So what I Christ. And there are a lot of ways that that doesn't make sense. Even if like the existential emotional reality of it feels deeply familiar to me. Right. But you deeply had to graft right it. True. You had to graft it oh, kind 100%. of Frankensteinishly onto your yeah. experience. And, and so the last thing I want to ask you is, and it's not a direct question so much as a, can you tell us a little about question, which I'm, you know, mm-hmm. clearly I'm not a journalist. Um, <laughs> but, how did you get to that understanding of yourself with nothing to model it upon? Trial and error. And it, 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 the thing that seeing what I was through fiction, like I had a very accessible language of what like love and obsession looked like. I had very accessible language for what being in love looked like. And even though it was pretty binary, even though it was totally binary and like pretty vanilla, (laughs) um, it was like, I was not lacking in examples for like what what at least a version of what it means when you feel so intensely for somebody. And I was just I was very lucky to be very comfortable with that at a for some reason at a really young age and not feel scared of it and not feel alienated by it. I didn't know what it meant really for me, but I wasn't something I ever felt like I needed to shy away from. And it meant like some friendships didn't work out because like I would be like, oh my God, this could be my, this could be my person. And it'd be like, oh no, it's, that's not me. And so it'd be like, oh, okay, well, then this isn't going to work for us. We, we can't be friends. And I was always pretty good at assessing up front who could handle that kind of part of me um, and, and who couldn't. And so fortunately there weren't like a terrible amount of miscommunications. Right. Um, but like, I remember when I was a uh, little, I may have talked about this on the podcast with somebody else before. Uh, I remember when I was little, there was like, there was when I was in sixth grade. I, like, was, like, really scared one day that, like, maybe I was gay. And I, like, started crying, and I went to my mom, and I was like, I think I might be, like, gay, I don't know. And my mom was like, well, pretty young. Who don't know? I don't know what you are yet. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, but, like, when you figure, when when you're, when you figure it out, we can talk about it. Like, that's fine. Doesn't matter. Shout out, mom. Nice work. And I immediately, she was just, like, power washing the back patio. She was power washing moss (laughs) off the back patio. (laughs) And, and, you know, perhaps in But I'm a Cheerleader, that we would call that my root. And (laughs) I remember just like being like, okay. And then I went inside and I stopped crying and I was fine for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I was worried for like a minute and then I wasn't. And then when it was like, oh, whatever I am, I'll just say it and it'll be fine. So I was never, and you know, there is a past that one gets in, in asexuality where like, you are not externalizing your sexuality in a way that you exposes you to persecution, to violence, to gay bashing, to hate crimes. It's all in here. Yeah. So, you know, it provides for some confusion for some people sort of like giving you a twisted face if they hear you talk about it. But like I was protected from the threats that a lot of outwardly queer people face that didn't force me into a closet of shame or fear of violent reprisal. And so like from a very young age, I was very comfortable processing emotions deeply broadly um and and easily able to find language for what i felt inside um and obviously you get better as you get older and you learn more language but i was never afraid of me i was never unable to understand me i made sense to me the biggest lesson i've had to learn in in getting older is that it will be a constant kind of work on my part and i either have to embrace that work and lean into it joyfully or if I grow resentful of it, then I have to reprioritize my life and the things that I'm focused on and and change the ways in which I identify who and what can be a partner to me in my life. And so far, that kind of shift has not been um, 
prompted me to change my priorities so far. But I le- again, I leave the door open to things could change in time. You don't know what's coming fucking next week, so I don't know what's coming next year. We're gray. Who knows? It's gray. It's gray. That's the great thing. It's gray. Jordan Cruciola, ladies and gentlemen, um, <laughs> a subject of her own style of scrutiny, I hope. Uh, <laughs> I would just like to say, after all of those beautiful things you said about the, the way you do friendship, that uh, it is truly a joy being your friend. I consider Thank myself you. lucky um, to have Same you in my you. life, and I I want people who listen to this podcast to know that you you're getting Jordan that this is who she is she's <laughs> this is she's it. this understanding and wonderful to talk to in real life and uh also this opinionated and strong-minded and uh you know not taking any bullshit from anybody uh I love you <laughs> and thank you for letting me do this I, yes I love you and I I am I am skeptical of men and I don't like or trust many of them but you are one of the few great men in this world Matt oh. Kolsky and I love you too that is truly gonna make me cry so uh i think (laughs) i think that's goodbye anything you want to plug on the way out jordan (laughs) uh you everybody should be listening to this podcast and subscribing to maximum fun that's what i am saying this podcast i like it i like it it's good corporate synergy right there that's right it is as today's host of feeling seen i really really wanted to do one quick thing before i go so here i am before you uh probably never hear from me ever again and it's really simple. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like I'm just a, a straight white guy with a wife and two kids and like pretty, pretty norm core. You know, I'm I'm sort of a creative and I, I like to think highly of myself and, and all of that, but I'm not that exciting. Um, and, you know, my imagination is not that great. Uh, and And I guess the point I want to make is how much... As that person, that sort of vanilla Jew that I just described, this podcast and the, the things that it talks about are super duper important to me. And and I, th- I think it's something that should be super duper important to people like me. A lot of people talk now about the missed opportunity indie films because of all the big Marvel and, and whatnot and... I usually think that's overblown, but representation is one of the places I don't think it is because it's great to have a black character or a gay character or whatever Asian characters as superheroes. That's all great, too. But to see the actual stories and be given, like I said, an opportunity to attempt to understand things that are outside of our own limited experience... I. It's important to me as a human being to be a better human being in the world. And so I'm really glad that this podcast can help me further seek out those experiences. And uh, I hope I did it justice with my appearance and performance today. Thank you for letting me do this. Okay. That will do it for this very special episode. I hope you think it was as special as I did. Thank you for being here, Matt Kolsky. I love you. Thank you for being a supporter. Thank you for being a member. Um, Double down on it and stay with us because we love you and we need you and you're great. And thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or you can join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash feeling scene pod 
You can also email us at feelingseen at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcru on Twitter, J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.